What a mighty God we serve. If you love him this morning, will you shout amen? Amen. You may take your seats today, church. Thank you to our worship team. Can we just appreciate our worship team this morning? Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you out in the gardens, in God's creation. How is everyone today? Can everybody, where you're sitting, can you hear me and can you see me? Church, isn't it good to gather as the church of Jesus Christ? Whether we're doing church inside or outside, we are going to honor the, the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We are going to bless the name of our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. We are going to exalt His name and lift His name up above everything and everyone else. Right? Can we just give Him another great shout of praise? Can we let the whole of Morbarton and Gilvista know that we are praising the King of Kings and Lord of Lords today? Amen. Church, in case you haven't heard, we are doing some construction work inside the church which we were hoping to complete this week, but unfortunately, we didn't get there. So this construction work will only be completed during the course of this next week, God willing. So that's why we're doing church outside today. But just like David said in Psalm 122, when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord, my heart leaped for joy. And now we're here. And now we're here, and what a blessing it is to be together with you this morning as we we come together and gather together in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, can we pray together this morning as we commit this time to the Lord? Let's bow our heads together. Father, we come to you this morning in the glorious and mighty name of Jesus. We lift up your name and exalt you above everyone and everything else in our lives. Lord, we praise you for your revelatory nature because you make known all the things that we need to know through the love of the Holy Spirit. As your word says, your Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And to those who have an ear to hear and a heart to understand, you declare all things from the beginning to the end. So Lord, as we continue today on our study of the book of Acts, or excuse me, the book of Revelation, this book of the end times, we ask, Lord, that you give us an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and what that means for us individually so that we can align ourselves with your perfect truth and reveal Jesus in every aspect of our lives. It is our heart's desire to represent you and reflect your glory in the way you deserve. So Holy Spirit, come and have your way in each of us today. Come and do the transformational work that we cannot do on our own. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Church, it's really good to be with you all today. And this morning we are going to continue with our series, Revealing Jesus, which as you know is a study on the book of Revelation. It's been a couple of months since we left off from the series, so I'm going to just spend some time today recapping, and then we'll get into the portion of Scripture today in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, that speaks to the church at Thyatira. So, just by show of hands, who is interested in end times prophecy? 
Who is interested in end time events? Who is interested in what will happen when it comes to the rapture or the, the battle of Armageddon or the thousand year millennial reign? Now, I don't know if you know this, but the correct name for the study of predictive prophecy or the study of end time events is known as eschatology. And it means just that. It comes from the Greek word eschatos and it means last things or last times. Now, some Christians don't really like the study of prophecy because they say that we should just be focusing on more worthwhile and, and solid aspects of the Bible. Or because there's just too many different opinions from different biblical scholars when it comes to these, these end time events. Or because, you know, too many people sensationalize prophecy. And I can agree with that because if you go onto YouTube, for example, there's a bunch of alarmists out there where you have these so-called prophets who post these covering images of fire and hell and the battle of Armageddon. And everything is written in capital letters, you know, in bold with all these exclamation points and usually accompanied with a picture of the, the prophet with this massively surprised look on their face. Like, you know, God just told me something, you know. So people get wary of that type of sensationalism. They take the view of, I'd rather let the future be what the future will be. Right? And church, yes, there's going to be a couple of distractions today. So with the wind and, and et cetera, et cetera. But let's just focus, keep a focus on God's word. So they say, let's rather just take the view of let's, let the future be what the future will be. Let's see what happens. So let's not talk about it or, or even study those portions of Scripture. But there's a problem with that type of approach. Because did you know that at least a quarter of your Bible is prophecy? I don't know who did the study, but to be precise, 26.8% of the Scripture is prophetic. So if you don't want to read or study, you know, prophecy, there is a lot of the Bible that you are going to miss out on. You're going to miss out on at least a quarter of the Scripture. You know, for example, it would be like me going to a surgeon to have a growth of cancer removed from my body and putting my life in his hands, but he has only studied 75% of what he was supposed to study in order to do the procedure. I don't know about you, but that wouldn't give me a lot of confidence, right? So for anybody to say, here's the Bible, and you know what? I'm, I'm just not going to teach a quarter of it because it's too controversial or too difficult to understand. In reality, what that person is saying is, I just don't want to apply myself to some of the more difficult portions of Scripture. And look, I'll be honest with you. The more that I study biblical prophecy, the more that I study the book of Revelation, and you look at these and you read these different Bible commentaries, I can understand why, why some have stayed away from it. Because it is extremely deep and it, it requires a lot from you. But as we committed to do in the introduction to this series, we are going to go where not many others are willing to go. And I want you to think of prophecy as being an aspect of one of God's great attributes. God is omniscient. He, he knows everything. And because He is omniscient, one of the aspects of His omniscience is that He knows the future in advance and can write about it and predict it through His prophets in graphic detail. 
In fact, prophecy is one of God's calling cards. It is what God uses to authenticate himself and to prove himself to people. Now, church, you'll have a little booklet this morning where if I'm going to refer to scriptures, you'll find the scriptures and images in that, that little booklet. God says in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, he says, Remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Only God can tell the future in advance. And the Bible is full of God's prophetic utterances. And church, do you know what the point of all biblical prophecy is? You know what it is? The focal point of all biblical prophecy of last day events is not the rapture. It's not the great tribulation. It's not the European Union or the World Economic Forum trying to create this, this one world order. It's not Gog or Magog or even the mark of the beast. The focal point of eschatology is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center stage of all biblical prophecy. Every prophetic subject that deals with the coming of the Messiah and the last days focuses, concentrates, and zeroes in on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, for example, there's much prophecy about the nation of Israel in the Bible. Why? Because Israel is the genetic national conduit that gave us Christ. And they have a lot to do with the end times. And that's why we need to pray for, for the nation of Israel. There's prophecy about the rapture. Why? Because the rapture is what unites us physically with Christ. There's a lot of prophecy about the tribulation period. Why? Because it is that period that will prepare the world through judgment for the return of Christ. There's a great deal of prophecy about the millennial kingdom and the, the thousand-year millennial reign. Again, why? Because it describes the literal kingdom of Christ and his rule and his reign over all of it. And don't you see? It's all about Christ. It's all about revealing Jesus. When Jesus was having a conversation with the religious leaders who opposed him, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they thought they knew so much about Scripture. Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the Scriptures point to me. And essentially, in a nutshell, church, all 66 books of the Bible are about one person and two events. That's the Bible right there. That's the Bible in a nutshell. One person, two events. The one person is Jesus Christ. And the two events are his first coming and his second coming. The first coming pointing to redemption. The second coming pointing to his rule and his reign. Right? So just get this picture. Just as the planets of our solar system revolve around the sun, all nations... All events, all of God's plans throughout history and throughout eternity revolve around the Son of Man. They revolve around the Son of God. They reveal Jesus. So the study of lost things, church, the study of eschatology, will lead any mature believer who responsibly and diligently studies eschatology 
It will lead that person straight to Christ and it will enlarge Christ, magnify him, and show him more capable every time. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing throughout this series. We are going to be studying this eschatological book, but we are going to be doing it so that we correctly reveal Jesus, number one, and number two, deeply prepare ourselves, right, with joyful anticipation of his imminent return. Right? Can I get an amen to that? So just to come back to what we've covered so far in this series, in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now just remember the word revelation means, to, it means an unveiling or a revealing. So it's to unveil and reveal Jesus, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The apostle John, who was in his 90s at the time, was the oldest and the last surviving of the original 12 apostles. And we find that he writes this letter from a little Greek island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And I know that most of us sitting here today would love to be on some Greek island having a vacation. You know, sitting on some, some lounger and sipping a non-alcoholic beverage. No, notice the non-alcoholic part, right? But John was not vacationing on Patmos. He was banished there by Domitian, who was the Roman emperor, and he was being persecuted along with thousands of other Christians that were oppressed and tortured by Domitian and Nero in the first century A.D., and some historical documents will tell us that John was even boiled in oil before he was taken to the island of Patmos. Even as old as he was, and probably even as disfigured as he was, God was not done with him. Because Jesus says to John in chapter 1 verse 19, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. And remember, verse 19 is really the outline for the entire book of the Revelation, right? Because when Jesus says, write about the things that you have seen, that's chapter 1, and that has to do with the majestic appearance of Jesus to the Apostle John. Then Jesus says, I also want you to write about the things which are, and that refers to the church age. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven different churches. Church, we are in the church age right now, and the church age will only come to an end when the rapture takes place. Also there in verse 19, Jesus says, I want you to write about the things which will take place after this. So after the church age comes future things, which we find from chapters 4 all the way to the end in chapter 22. And that's really when we get into the portions of this book of prophecy that will speak to the tribulation period, the Jesus' second coming, the battle of Armageddon, the thousand-year millennial reign, and the new heaven and the new earth, among many others. So we have a lot to look forward to. But church, something I want to remind you of this morning, as interesting as the book of Revelation gets, there's also going to be parts where it may become a bit controversial. Right, and I say that because when we talk about the second coming of Christ, we need to understand that there's a lot of differing opinions about Jesus' second coming, 
even by some of the greatest theological minds of our time and time pa- times past. So, for example, let me give an example. If I differ with, with some of the biblical scholars or, or someone that you've listened to before on the top topic of the rapture, it's okay. No, really, it's okay. The purposes of this series is to prepare us for what God is doing in this season and to prepare us for His return. It's not to get into religious debates about topics that can sometimes separate the best and smartest and and even closest of Christians. This is about revealing Jesus. My commitment to you is that I will endeavor to bring as much context and scripture to explain why, for instance, I have the view that the church will be raptured before the Great Tribulation. But I will say this from the get-go. Don't just take my word on everything I say. As your pastor, I'm only trying to be a facilitator by using the gift of teaching and preaching for us to study God's Word together. But as part of the body, I want to encourage you to have the, the discipline of the Bereans. The Apostle Paul said in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, he said the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, commended a group of people, right, for their diligent pursuit of the Scriptures to verify what he was saying was actually true. So yes, I encourage you to do the same thing. Don't just take what I say at face value. Read your Bibles, study your Bibles for yourselves. There's great resources out there that will help you to understand the Greek and the Hebrew. There's lexicons, there's concordances, among many others. And you can become educated about what the Scriptures really say. And this is important for all of us, church, to grow in our faith, to know God's Word, and to know His will for our lives. So can I get that commitment from you? To have that same type of diligence? Now, church... Who can remember what the seven golden lampstands represent in the book of Revelation? It says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, John is speaking and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The seven golden lampstands represent these seven churches that Jesus dictates a letter to in chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. Now, you may remember that the lampstands also are also known as the menorah. And very interestingly, the menorah in ancient times was the only source of light in the temple. right? And is therefore representative of how the church today must be the light set on a hill. That we might let the light of the Lord shine and we might reflect Jesus in our culture and in our world. I mean... 
Didn't Jesus say about us that we are the light of the world? And let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? When you enter a room or you enter into a conversation, do you think of yourself, hey, I'm the light of the world? You probably don't really think of it like that, but you are. And think of it this way. There are many, many people in this world who are looking for a way out of their darkness. Right? These, these are people that, that, that like to stay in their darkness, that promote their darkness, they love to stay in their sin, but there are many people who are looking for a way out. But if they look at God's people and we seem to be in the dark as well, there's not a whole lot of hope for them now, is there? It's like the story I heard about a lighthouse when, when lighthouses were, were still lit with, with paraffin and kerosene many, many moons ago. And in any case, this specific lighthouse, on one day, one of the glass panes fell out. And so they had to replace it. But they didn't have glass at that point in time, so they had to send someone to go and fetch it, right? So what they did in the interim is they put a piece of tin in. So it kept the light going, but the only problem was that from one direction there was a dark spot. And according to the story, a, a ship trying to find the harbor one night couldn't see it because in looking at the lighthouse, it saw a dark spot. And you can just imagine what happened next. And in the same way, people trying to navigate through life are looking what is on the lampstand. And when they see us shining a light, they need to be able to see it bright and clear because if there are dark spots, they're not going to find their way home to the one and only true Savior, Jesus Christ. They're not going to find their way out of the darkness. They're not going to find their way to the truth. And that's why Jesus writes these letters to these seven churches and to most of them with such a strong warning to be churches that correctly represent Him and reflect His glory. Amen. We need, to be, we need to reflect the glory of the Lord. People need to see our light shining brightly. When we talk about these letters to the seven churches, here's what we need to remember. First of all, they are literal churches that were in existence in the first century in what is known today as Turkey. Right? And to give you a picture of what I'm talking about, have a look at that little map on your booklet of where the seven churches were located. This is the presumed route by which John's letter was circulated among the churches. And as you can see, the line starts on a little island called Patmos and then moves in a clockwise direction from Ephesus all the way to the seventh church in Laodicea. Another important thing to remember as we discuss these churches is that, yes, that there are literal churches that existed in the first century. So they have literal relevance. But they very much also have spiritual relevance, church, in issues that are relevant to us and for churches and for believers today. So when the Lord commends them for some things and then rebukes them for some other things, these are applicable for us today too. Because the spiritual relevance is, what is Jesus saying to the church even right now? Now something I want to, to add to this church, and I want us to go a little bit deep this morning. Is that okay? Something I want to add to this, which I didn't do for the first three churches that we've already covered, is that each of these seven churches have historical relevance. 
right? And I'll explain what I mean. Since the first church was born on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, each church that Jesus dictated the letter to is actually pointing to a time period on the timeline of church history. From the time that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost until the day that he comes a second time. We know now, 2,000 years later, that church historians tell us that there's a pattern to what Jesus has given us in these seven letters to the seven churches. That as you look at the churches and you look at the description of where they're at and how they're doing and that the things that surround them, it just so happens that each of the church eras or epics fall into a line or a category of, of church history. And have a look at that diagram in your booklet of what I'm referring to when I speak about the timeline of church history. The first church that we already covered was Ephesus. And even though, yes, Ephesus has literal and spiritual relevance as we've covered, Ephesus also represents the time period of the church from basically when Pentecost happened until the time when the apostle John died around 100 AD, which ended the apostolic age. Right? So that's what Ephesus represents from a historical point of view. And then after Ephesus comes Smyrna from about 100 AD to 312 AD. And the historical reference of the church at Smyrna was that it represented the age of the church where Christians were persecuted and martyred for their faith. And I'm not talking about martyrdom that is still taking place today at different parts of the world, in different countries of the world, which is just as bad and just as horrific. But at that time in the known world, it was illegal to be a Christian. And there was an official order given to kill anyone who was a Christian in every single country that was inhabited by the Roman Empire. And yes, this type of martyrdom did already start in the first century under Domitian and Nero, but this type of persecution and oppression over Christians remained in place for another 200 plus years. And that's what this period of the church age represents. Christians were severely persecuted, tortured, and oppressed. After Smyrna comes Pergamos from 312 to 606 AD. And this was the time in church history where the Roman emperor, and this is interesting, when the Roman emperor known as Constantine the Great made um, Christianity the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity finally, right, so it went from the, excuse me, I'm moving around a bit just to get out the sun. So it went from the most persecuted religion to the official religion. Christianity and Christians finally had set some type of religious freedom. But what happened in this period of the church is that the church became married to the government. And so it became politically beneficial to become a church leader. So what happened is that people did it for power and prestige, not for calling and sacrifice. And what resulted was that the church became worldly and compromising. And that's in why in your Bible it is called the compromising church. Now you'll notice, church, on that diagram that the last four churches don't have an end date. It says till now. And yes, they did actually have an end date when the, when the new one started. But the reason I haven't put an end date to them is because these type of church institutions 
structures and, and systems are still in existence today, and these are the type of churches that will enter the Great Tribulation. Right? These are the type of churches that will still be the existence when Jesus comes, and they will enter the Great Tribulation. And I'm going to give you a lot more detail on each of these last four churches when we get there. Now, granted, you may be thinking, but pastor, does this really have any significance for today? And would it help us to live in any way differently as Christians in this day and age? Will it empower us in any way? Well, church, as I said, yes, there is the literal relevance for each church. There is the spiritual relevance that will help us as believers today. But if you are aware of the historical relevance, firstly, you will clearly begin to see why it is so important to be a part of a church that Jesus approves of. A church where the lampstands are burning brightly. Secondly, it will give you a much better picture of the church age we are in now and how close we are to the Lord's return. And thirdly, with this knowledge, you can lovingly, and I mean lovingly, encourage friends and family that belong to other so-called Christian doctrines or even other religions why they need to hear what the Bible really says. This is more significant than you can imagine. And church, like I said earlier, I want to encourage you to go deep with me as we spend the next couple of weeks studying the true relevance of the four remaining churches. Right? Can I get that commitment from you again? And just so we're clear here, we're not studying churches for the sake of studying churches just to pass time. We are going through history. And we are going to reach the climax and the culmination of all of God's history, the return of Jesus Christ. Right? The revelation, the consummation, the final apocalypto, the final unveiling and revealing of Jesus and where everything is going to be fulfilled. And listen, church, we may see that in our lifetime. We may see that in our lifetime. Every generation wanted to see it, but we may literally see it. And that's why it's so ex exciting to study and so exciting for us to look at. On that note, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 on, on your booklet there, church. We're not, I just want to say from the start, we're not going to be able to conclude our study today on the church of Thyatira, but we'll at least set a good foundation. Give me about another five or six minutes of your time this morning, and then we'll begin to close. This is what Jesus says. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death 
And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your words. We'll stop there for now. When we come to the church of Thyatira, from a historical point of view, the real decay in the church began at the church of Pergamos, which on the historical timeline began around 303 AD. And as I mentioned earlier, this was the time in the church history where the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But what happened in this time of the church period is that the church became married to the state, it became married to the, to the government. Right? So right throughout the, the Roman Empire, the church was no longer a, a spiritual institution, it was actually an arm of the government. And as we've already seen in our study, this really displeased the Lord because Jesus says to the church at Pergamos in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. God said to the church at Pergamos, I hate what you're doing and I hate how you've allowed Satan to have a foothold in your church. But as that mixture through time right, became worse and worse, the marriage between the church and government got worse and worse. What developed was a slow deterioration of the truth. Until you ended up, listen to this church, until you ended up with forced baptisms, until you ended up with forced conversions, and with people having to belong to the church, otherwise they would be punished by the government. People were given tax and financial incentives if they joined the church, and there were significant incentives for people to become pastors and leaders within the church because they could now do it just for money, for power, and for prestige. Not for service, not for calling, not for sacrifice. And everything that for 300 years had been an abomination to the church had now come into the church. And it clearly wasn't a representation of the bride of Christ that Jesus is coming back for. It was rather a representation of the harlot of Satan. So from the 4th century AD, you started to get, this is what happened, you started to get people as head over the church instead of Jesus Christ being head of the church. And from the 4th century AD, you had local leaders, and sometimes they were called patriarchs, sometimes they were called bishops or priests, and even the word papa started to be used. But when you get here to around 606 AD, which represents the church age of Thyatira, the title of Pope was given to Boniface III by the Roman Emperor Phocas. And have, what you have from that point onwards is the emergence of the, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, most Catholics will disagree and they will say that Peter was the first Pope. But history will in fact show us that the, the title Pope was only given early in the 7th century. Now church, I want to say something this morning. I'm going to say a few things over the next couple of weeks about the Roman Catholic Church and, and other religious traditions. And I'm not saying it because I want to trash different, different faiths or religions. That's not what I'm about. I'm just simply about pointing out what the Bible says about things and some of the practices that are incon inconsistent with what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. Because listen, church, if you really believe that the Bible is the handbook for faith and practice for Christian living, then you have to evaluate every religious tradition 
and every religious practice through the grid of God's word. Right? That's important for every single uh, Christian to do, no matter what denomination you come from. Let me give an example of, of what I'm talking about. You know, when I was younger, even though we didn't go to church, my parents identified our family as Methodists. And when I was a, a young lad, I, I was christened. Methodists taught that if you sprinkle as an infant, you're good to go, and that was taught as, as, as water baptism. But despite the fact that we thought it was a good thing to do at the time, at the end of the day, our own traditions conflicted with what Scripture says. Because when you look at the Bible, you clearly see that people are only water baptized as a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. Right? You first give your heart to the Lord, and then you're water baptized. Because when babies are christened, they have no idea what it means to commit your life to the Lord. So here's the thing. Despite any traditions we may have been exposed to, we have to expose those traditions to God's Word. Why? Because if God intended it to be a certain way, then we must obey. And if we don't obey church, what happens is we slowly allow Satan a foothold in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our organization. It reminds me of a story I heard about a pastor. He was talking about how you know, traditions can be passed down from generation to generation. And the story goes that this, this little girl asked her mom one day, her mom's about to put this roast, a little pot roast into the oven, and she says, Mommy, why do you cut off both ends of the pot roast? The mom says, I don't really know why I do that. It's just it got passed down from Granny, but I think it makes it more juicy. She says, why don't you go ask Granny why, why, why she did that? So the little one runs off and she speaks to Granny. She says, Granny, Mommy said that you cut off both ends of the pot roast. You told her how to do that. And she said it makes it more juicy. Granny says, you know what, I don't know. That was also passed down, but I, I think it makes it more juicy. Because the little girl's thinking, why are you cutting off the meat? You're wasting meat, you know. Anyway, she says, why don't you go ask great-grandma? The little one runs off to great-grandma, and she says, great-grandma, mom and grandma said, you know what, you cut off both ends of the pot roast because it makes it more juicy. Great-grandma, she just packs out laughing. She says, my child, the only reason I cut off both ends of the pot roast is because the pot was too small. <laughs> and can you see how traditions can be passed down from generation to generation and we don't even know what it means? Church, we're not going to have time to go much further today. So I'm going to stop there, but I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. I want to ask you to do something in your quiet time this week. Time when you get alone, just to think yourself and to and to reflect a bit, to have a bit of an inward look. We are going to go pretty deep into what Jesus approves of and what he hates in his church and what he hates in the lives of believers. We are going to expose traditions and rituals that are not of what God approves of, but have somehow infiltrated the church and lives of believers since the first church was, that was planted on the day of Pentecost. And whether you come from a Catholic or Orthodox background, right, or you're a Mormon, or you're a Jehovah's Witness, or you know what, somewhere in your family there's been this tradition of, of ancestral worship or, or witchcraft. Or even if you're sitting here today and you've been brought up in an Eastern or Islamic religion, which comes with many rituals and traditions. 
I want you to really consider this. Are those rituals and traditions found in, the God's, in finding God's word and does God approve of them? And some of you may already say, well, well, of course they do. But as we go through the study of these churches and as we find out what Jesus really desires from the bride of Christ, from his church, the church that he's coming back for, if you identify anything that you've allowed a foothold in your life or something that has just become a tradition for you and your family, and you measure that against the truth in God's word, and then you find that that thing is an abomination to the Lord, be honest enough with yourself and identify that. And we will have a time towards the end of this study of these churches where we renounce, where we repent and return to the way of the Lord. And you know what? This is not just limited to traditional practices because Jesus even challenges the condition of our hearts. What did he say to the church at Ephesus? Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have lost your first love. Church, I believe that, that the Lord wants to set a few things straight with his church because he's coming back for a spotless bride. He's coming back for a pure bride and may our hearts and ears be ready to receive what he is saying to his church. Remember, receive that word this morning? Just give the Lord a, a hand for his word.